The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Well, I've got a few questions for Bruce just to touch on a, a couple of topics that he didn't hit on in great detail in his remarks, and then we will open it up so that you have plenty of time to ask your questions as well. And so I'm going to start with the sort of question of the day and get it off the table, but just related to the strike. And yeah. I know there's limits to what you can talk about uh, because I think there's a, a media blackout from your perspective on that. But uh, in terms of where that is and where it's going, what what do you see uh, is going to have to happen to bring that to conclusion in any time in the near term? And kind of what are the major issues around that that are going to have to be worked through? Um, there is a press blackout, so I, I actually am, am very limited in what I can say. Having said that, um, we're, we're really encouraged by the progress that was made in the last 10 days with the Directors Guild. Um, we are optimistic that um, we will be able to sit down uh, and begin informal conversations with the writers um, tomorrow. Uh, what happens beyond that, I, I, I can't share, but or, or I frankly don't know. Um, but the template and the groundwork that was done by the directors in, in their three weeks of negotiations certainly leads us to believe that there is a formula that can work for, for all of the, um, the guilds that, that have an interest in this. Um, the, the, to cut through it, the, the three issues that are the most relevant and certainly the ones that are the most talked about are how the guilds are compensated when the studios uh, download their product on the internet um, for ownership by the consumer. What, what is their share of revenue in that downloaded product? Um, the second bucket is uh, how do we share revenue with the guilds when product is streamed online, not for ownership, but is streamed online on an ad-supported basis? And then finally, um, and probably the most relevant for what I was talking about, is what is the um, guild jurisdiction um, for original content that's produced for broadband? And you, know, you can go online and, and go to the DGA site and read what the, the model is that was developed with the DGA to handle jurisdiction in particular. But essentially, when programming costs a certain price point, once you get to that price point, then that kind of content is covered by the DGA, um, where we are obligated to hire DGA, um, pay PH&W, Pension Health and Welfare, um, everything else is up for negotiation. They did not negotiate minimum compensation, um, but they do have jurisdiction once the price point of that original production exceeds a certain level. Um, so we're hopeful that that template will move us forward in a much more positive way with the writers than, than, than we got to back in December. Um, obviously, a, a work stoppage isn't good for anybody, and it's in all of our best interest to sit down and, and, and figure this out and get everybody back to work. So. Just from a planning perspective, when you, from a risk assessment kind of business continuity perspective, how do you and in your industry and at Warner Brothers sort of uh, plan for and prepare for something like this that could happen? Clearly, it's not anything any of us want to see in our organizations, but we all do risk assessment of major things that could stop or influence our business continuation. So talk a little bit about sort of how you plan for that from a more strategic perspective, sort of independent of this particular incident. Well, this was, I mean, this was not unexpected. Yeah. Certainly the smoke signals had been out there for, for many, many months, so we, we knew this was coming. Um, you, you accelerate your production 
Um, your, whatever it is you're manufacturing, in our case, is television shows. You accelerated as much of that as you could. Th that was very, very minimal at the time. Um, you make no long-term commitments that you would be obligated to pay during a work stoppage, um, and you encourage your, your executives and your employees to do everything they can to plan um, for minimizing uh, expenditures during, during however long that, that, that work stoppage um, takes. Um, however, when, there is a, when you are in the business of manufacturing television programs and there's a work stoppage that doesn't allow you to produce television programs, there's going to be a, an impact. Um, it does not impact our distribution side of our business. Our worldwide distribution business is still flourishing and, and is going on on a daily basis. Our first run syndication business is, is still very, very active. Ellen is producing, Tyra is producing extra. Judge Mathis, um, People's Court, um, and our TV animation business is moving forward. But our core business, which is producing primetime television shows, as it is at all the other uh, major studios, shut down, and, and you're going to have a financial impact. Let's talk a little bit about the worldwide distribution and, and that piece of your business. How has your international operation evolved and changed in recent years, and where do you see that going in the years ahead in terms of being a significant part of what you do in your business? International has always been a very, very important piece of any television studio. I mean, it, the, the revenue that comes in from the international side of our business um, ideally offsets the production deficits that we incur on the, on the product we produce for prime time. The, the good news is that in the last five years, um, the international marketplace for U.S. television content has been vibrant. Um, part of that is due not to nothing that we've done, which is simply the the devaluation of the dollar creates a, a situation where the international revenue is that much more valuable when it comes over here. So that certainly has, has helped us um, on, the, on the international side. It doesn't help clearly on the domestic side. Um, second, there is significantly more competition around the world to acquire U.S. product. There's more networks being developed. There's more buyers of U.S. content. And it's you know, simple. The more demand there is for your product, the higher the pricing can be. Um, third, U.S. product is is um, doing well internationally. Um, in, the, in the last five or so years, the price point of U.S. products has, has risen dramatically, which isn't good news for somebody sitting in my, in my chair. Um, but when you see product like Lost and Prison Break, and in our case, Sarah Connor Chronicles and Pushing Daisies, and those price points are getting so high, um, it's theatrical content, theatrical quality content on television. The international local marketplace can't compete with that. The local product does not look competitive next to programs that cost $3 million an episode. So our product is performing better internationally. What we're going to be doing in the next couple of years to expand our international business is, um, one, begin to produce more content in local language in the local markets. Um, one or two of the other studios have, have built a business around this. Uh, we've built that business on, on our theatrical side. We've not built it yet on the TV side, and we're going to go and expand our, our local language production internationally. And the second, as, as the new media space evolves here domestically, it's evolving a hell of a lot faster internationally. And what we will be doing is, is um, quickly building um, a much more uh, robust internet distribution, broadband distribution um, of, our, of our content in, in local territories. Obviously, because content is sort of king in your world, the issues of piracy, both domestically and internationally, are obviously significant to you. What are you doing to sort of manage that risk for the company? Um, to, to a couple things. One, uh, we're trying to get ahead of the curve as, and learn from what happened with the music industry by, by crafting consumer-friendly legal ways to access content. 
Um, are, are we succeeding 100%? No, I don't think you can succeed 100%, but we're making um, legally acceptable, um, technologically friendly ways of accessing content for as, for as low a price as, as you can. And second, you work with as many, if not all, the technology companies to, to enforce your, your DRM as, as effectively as you can. Um, Piracy is not going away. It's a problem for our theatrical side of our company. It's a problem for our home video company. It's certainly a problem for the TV company. But, but we're, we're managing it as best as we can, and we've thrown a lot of resources at it. Now, Warner Brothers Television Group is part of a large media conglomerate, Time Warner. And what, um, what challenges does that pose for you as a, a group that's trying to be innovative and entrepreneurial? And then what opportunities do you get by leveraging the other units? within Time Warner? I, I don't think we ever see it as an impediment. I think the, the uh, ability to, to pick up the phone and deal with AOL certainly helps you when it comes to some new media issues. I think being able to pick up the phone and deal with the Turner companies, whether it's Cartoon Network on the animation side or TBS or TNT on the, on the live, on, on the primetime side is, is a benefit. Um, the magazine division is, is ripe with ideas for, for um, content. Um, even, even the cable company, um, the MSOs, you know, we own Time Warner Cable here in Los Angeles, and dealing with VOD issues, dealing with technology issues around the, the, the distribution of content is, is helpful. So anytime we can get together with, with, um, with our sister, and HBO is a great relationship. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, we don't ever see it, frankly, as an impediment. I, don't, I, I think we, we at, at, at the TV side, think as a small company. We try to mm -hmm. live what I talked about, which is to be nimble, to be reactive quickly, to, to not be bound by bureaucracy as much as possible. But we also take advantage, where appropriate, of being part of, of a much larger company. How do you think that larger company has been able to develop that kind of a culture that allows that to happen, even within a Well, a some would argue we, that it's not a great thing. I mean, um, you know, if you study management, I don't know, I don't know if you'd, you'd say silos are a good thing or a bad thing. Um, it, it, they have good days and they have bad days, mm -hmm. um, but we are known to be a siloed company. And by being a siloed company, Warner Brothers while we cooperate and collaborate mm -hmm. and while HBO cooperates and collaborates, every day our job is to say how, how do we make Warner Brothers better? Secondarily then, how do we make Time mm -hmm. Warner better? That's, that's just a, 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 an ethic of our company and it's been that way for, I've been there 21 years, it's been that way since I've been there. Mm -hmm. so. When we had the podcast interview earlier, one of the questions that I asked Bruce had to do with... And I was just kidding, you should go listen to it because I was... <laughs> <laughs> he was really good, you really need to go listen to it. Now, one of the things we talked a little bit about was uh, leadership qualities and that he has, feels like are important and how that's evolved. But one of the things you talked about, I want to touch on this before we open it up to the audience, you talked a lot about the, you used the term business ethic. And, and in the context of that, talked about the importance of sort of ethics and a sort of a values base in terms of working in, in the television business. And that's certainly very important to us here. Our mission as a business school is to develop value-centered leaders. And so we spend a lot of time talking about what that means and being a values-driven business leader. So talk about why that's so important to you personally and then to the kind of organization, the industry you're in, um, in terms of what you're doing and the business you're trying to accomplish. Um, <laughs> it's a loaded question. <laughs> um, we, you know, we work in a business that is different, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training, so I'm used to things being by contract, um, being precise and going to the letter of the contract. 
And for 21 years, I've worked very hard to break all of those bad habits. Um, because we work in a business that's not driven by contract. Um, you know, we, we like to say if you ever have to go and look at the contract to determine an issue, you've failed miserably because the, it's irreparably damaged, whatever it is that forced you to go back and look at the contract. We work in a business which is filled with egos. It's filled with a lot of people who don't follow the, the notion that you should have business ethics. And yet we're, we work in a business that's driven by handshakes and verbal agreements and contracts that are just simply never signed. And if you craft a relationship as an executive, or more importantly, if you craft a, a reputation as a company that is one that can be trusted, that, one, that is one whose word is good and will be followed through, through thick or thin, and, and I mean that because that's not just an individual reputation, it's also a company reputation. And if you hire people and work with people who follow that work ethic and you get rid of people who don't follow that work ethic, um, it will make your life a hell of a lot easier in dealing with the rest of our business. And um, you've got to be able to shake somebody's hand in a room and close a deal and then let the lawyers figure out how to document the paper. Um, because if you ever have to go look at that paper, you screwed up. And that, at all, at, that comes from my boss, who I've worked with for 21 years. Um, he has surrounded himself with people who follow that and believe that. I've tried to follow in his footsteps as we build our television team and have worked with the same, you know. The, part of Warner Brothers is, I've been there 21 years and I'm relatively the new kid on the block. You know, if you look in my building, most of the guys have been and women have been there far more than 20 years. And there's a reason for that. You know, we attract a type of person um, who, who gets a I mean, there, there's a culture there. There's a culture at the other companies, too, for good or for bad. And if, if I had been, you know, I, I get asked a lot now, I get asked by my kids because they're that age, you know, advice. And, and the one piece of advice I always give is, you know, go find a place where your personality and your work ethic fits. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at what I do, and I would have failed at several of the other companies. And there's people who are very good at what they do and are successful at those other companies who would have failed at our company. Not for good, not for bad, they just, it's just different. And, and um, we have found a group of people who all seem to be on that same level playing field from a work ethic standpoint. Um, and I like that. You know, that's a, that's a nice place to work. And that's a nice environment with, within which we succeed. And when somebody at our company says, done, I, I agree, it's done, and it doesn't matter what the paper, I mean, it does matter what the paperwork says, that's, that's trite, but you shouldn't have to go look at the paperwork to figure out what did you just agree to. Well, it speaks to how critical the sort of the hiring process and the new development process in an organization is to uh, nurture people into the culture and into the organization that you're a part of. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's really helpful. What I want to do is open the floor to questions because I know we've got people that would love to, to pick uh, Bruce's brain about some things. I, we've touched on a lot of things sort of uh, at a minimal level, so we'll see if we can dig down a little bit. We've got a question back here. Um, a little bit different. 
I think that the, the theatrical side is, is more focused, appropriately so, on transitioning from the packaged goods of DVDs to digital downloading. How do you, how do you manage the transition from a analog business of walking into a store and buying a piece of packaged goods, how do you manage that to an electronic sell-through transaction, which is a digital transaction? Because that's really the primary focus on the theatrical side. On the television side, um, we've done a really good job of training people to watch commercials. Now, mind you, most people fast forward with TiVo, but it's, it's still an advertiser-supported model, an advertiser-supported medium. So we're focused more on how to transition from an analog linear, come watch NBC Thursday night at 8 o'clock, you'll watch the 8.30 show, you'll watch the 9 o'clock show, a very linear model to over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, how do we manage the transition to a digital model much more on demand, but we believe much more on an advertiser-supported basis. So those two are a little different. The, this, this, the, the second part of that question, which you didn't ask, but, but the, the silo piece, our, our our view doesn't bump up against, but isn't always consistent with Turner, for example, because they're a very network-centric model. So you have to think in terms of, am I thinking as a network, or am I thinking in terms of a content supplier? You know, I I've been trained after 21 years at Warner Brothers to think as a content-centric um, executive. If I had worked at ABC or NBC or TNT for the last 21 years, I'd be thinking as a network-centric um, model. And a network-centric model is challenged, is threatened by a disaggregating technology. And on-demand is a disaggregation technology. Networks are all about aggregating content. If you're ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, or TNT, or USA, you're about aggregating content and bringing people into your tent. If you're in the content side of the business and you take this out to its extreme, that's a disaggregation model of VOD. And, and those don't necessarily dovetail together. They're oftentimes in conflict. So, so even within a company like ours, you, you, you will see two different sides of the discussion. And again, it's healthy because you need to figure it out. You, know, you can't stick your head in the sand and say, oh, no, you know, that's not going to happen. You need to, you need to figure it out. OK, right back here. <clears throat> this is an insider question right here. Um, ideally, it's church and state. I mean, if we're doing our job right, it's church and state. Um, before, I, I, honestly, though, before, um, uh, who, who made the anti-Semitic comments? Mel Gibson. I did get a call. It was early on. I did get a call. We have the story. What do we do? I did the appropriate thing, which was pass the buck to my boss. And <laughs> called, I called him and said, okay, what do we do? Um, and he's, you got to run it. Um, so I, I, I'm hopeful, given that our company's core heritage goes back to Time, Inc., I'm hopeful that we maintain church and state. We have not yet faced the George Clooney situation, but I'm hopeful, and, and, and I would certainly come out on the side of church and state, and, you know, you got to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, first, thanks for coming to the 
My pleasure. I always wanted to see what Pepperdine looked like. It looks, by the way, I went to USC. We had the exact same view all four years that I was there. <laughs> I got to tell you. As I said to Scott, ours was a mural on the side of the wall. <laughs> Damn, how do you guys ever go to class? We have, a, we have a strategic planning department, which is a full service department that works for all of the core businesses at the company. We, we also have executives within a good strategic planning department is one that you don't stay there more than two or three years. You, you move into one of the line jobs. So we have people um, dispersed around the company who had strat planning experience. Um, we. We meet, um, I mean, independent of my meetings with each president of each of the divisions on a weekly basis, we have a digital core group that meets every two weeks, every, every other Tuesday morning. Um, and a lot of that is strategic planning, a lot of that's thought, a lot of that is just a two-hour roundtable where everybody is throwing out what is going on in, 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 their, in their operation. Um, we've We've made an intentional decision not to central on the TV side not to centralize our digital businesses. Um, we think it is better to let each of the divisions of the television operation manage and be involved in the transition of their business from analog to digital. You know, our, our three production entities are each involved in producing original content. Our, our, our distribution operations are involved in distributing original content on, online. You know, TMZ came out of Telepictures Productions, which is the team that produces Ellen and Tyra and Extra. That's where TMZ came from. Um, the, the animation website's going through the animation division of our company. So we bring everybody together every other week. They all throw out ideas. They all talk about what they're working on. It's a, it's a brainstorming session. The, my favorite part of it is we have guest speakers come in and explain all this. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what a wiki was until not too long ago, and somebody came in and did a whole, you know, I kept reading this going, okay, you know, circle, I'm, I'm 50, I don't know what this means, circling it and saying, somebody come explain this to us. So it's as much educational as it is brainstorming. Your 20 and 16 year old would have probably been able to answer that question. I for should you. have called my daughter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> she won't take my call, she's at college. <laughs> yes, back here. No, I, I, my bot, Barry uh, Meyer, um, cu couple of things. One, because we never owned a broadcast network, we were, and, and our core business is producing content for, for broadcast networks, we had to figure out different business models to make ourselves attractive to, to, um, to these broadcast networks. When the financial interest and syndication rules were eliminated, and the broadcast networks were able to align with studios and therefore could become our competitors. When your buyers become your competitors, you're in a lot of trouble. And that's what happened to us. So we, by necessity, had to be as creative as we could in our deal-making process with, with our buyers and newfound competitors. So that, that really came from, from, from my boss. Um, I, I've had the luxury of having you know, a couple of mentors along the way who all were very creative and, and outside the box thinkers, which is a you know trite saying, but it was it's true. Um, and and I think I do my best to pass that along to the people we work with and 
and, um, but, it, but it comes from my boss. Now, in our discussion with the podcast, you commented on not seeing yourself as particularly creative, but you surround yourself with creative people. Talk a little bit about how that has evolved for you, being in a very creative industry, but not necessarily seeing yourself. Um, I grew. I mean, I grew up on the legal side, mm -hmm. and then I came up through business affairs, and um, you know, it was clear to me I, I I can't read a script, I can't make casting decisions, and I can't look at rough cuts and give notes because that's not what I do for a living. Um, we have a lot of very, very, very talented people around us who know how to do that. That's what they do. That's what they love to do. Um, and, and our job as managers of, of this television group are to, is to surround ourselves with, with experts and, and exceptional people in each one of those areas. I mean, I wouldn't, for the moment, know how to talk to Ellen DeGeneres about coming and doing a talk show for us. That's just not what I do. Um, Hillary Esty McLaughlin excels at that. You know, she runs telepictures for us. Her, she just brought over Bonnie Hunt to do a talk show. She knows how to produce talk shows. She knows how to talk to talent. She knows how to, to make them feel very comfortable. I know how to look at the business model, and I know how to look at the P&L statement, and I know how to talk to the, to the, um, to the stations to, to structure those deals. But, you know, I know to stay away from the set. I'll go, uh, so, so um, my boss is very much the same way. You know, it's, know your strengths, know what you're good at, um, do that well, and then what you're not good at, hire really good people. Um, and don't be afraid to hire people who are better than you at what you do as well, because they only make you stronger. The only way I've been able to, to move up um, over the course of 20 years is when there was somebody that could take the job I was doing. Because if I'm looking to promote somebody, uh, the first question I ask, even though it may be the absolute right thing to do, is, well, who's going to do that job? And unless there's somebody ready to step in and take their job, I'm going to think twice about making that promotion because I need to get that job done too. So make, you know, I always wanted to make sure there were people that I worked with who were certainly better than I was in the areas I'm weak in and, and equally if not stronger than I am and even in the areas I'm strong in. Speaks to the importance of succession planning at many levels in an organization so you can move up through the organization. And yeah. Next is my daughter. She can have the job. <laughs> That's right. Um, one is really good media training. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've been really for, I've been really lucky. I, um, I, I got bit with the bug when I, I, when I was in law school. I was a tour guide at Universal Studios. And I remember watching the people on the tram and watching their faces. And you know, you drive down the street and show them a styrofoam rock from the $6 million man. And they'd pull out their cameras and take a picture. And, and it's just like that, that moment just said, OK, there's something magical about the entertainment business. Um, then I went off and decided to become a tax lawyer. And I spent six months in a, I studied accounting at SC. I went to UCLA and studied tax law, made fun of all my friends who were taking entertainment law courses. And I spent six months as a tax lawyer and realized I'd made the most horrific mistake of my life. So every day I think about how much my life would be miserable if I was still a tax lawyer. And that'll make you passionate <laughs> about, about, about doing television. I also, um, 
I get to work at a place that I really, really like with people that I really, really like. You know, uh, granted, the last 12, 14 weeks have been rather stressful for all of us, so it's been a tough, tough time. But up until the writer's strike, um, we, we live a very charmed existence. I mean, we get to make television shows. And if you don't step back and realize that this is playtime and this is fantasy land and there's a lot of other jobs that, are, that suck a lot more than this, you know, uh, how are you not going to realize that? So that, that's number one. Number two, I love all this new media stuff. I, I am passionate about that. I do think that that's, that's um, a really fun part that, that, that I get to play because I, I have a relatively senior role in a, an exciting time in our business, and, and I get to, to, to have an, an impact and make some, some, ask some questions and, 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 and make some decisions about where we're headed with that, and that's fun. That, that's... that's that's inspiring. That that you know, and finally we work with a really cool group of people, which makes it fun to come to work every day. So. Bruce, you talked about the this recent period, obviously during the strike, being very stressful. What do you do personally to help deal with those particularly stressful times? Are there things you do that help you manage that and deal with it, maintain no, your sanity I, through I, that, um, or not? No, uh, you know, people are out of work. People are losing a lot of money. Um, these are people that we're very close to, that we work very closely with, that we make a lot of money together with, and you can't get past that. I mean, um, sure, you go and work out and run and scream and listen to loud music, but you know that's that doesn't help. Yeah. It's it's a stressful time, mm -hmm. and if it if it weren't a stressful time, if if you didn't feel stress from people being out of work, then something's wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 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 a it's an unhealthy time for all of us, so we, we need to figure out a way to get sure. past this. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Let's take one more question, and we need to wrap up here, but uh, yes. Uh, okay, uh, I have a more programming-centric question. Sure. You talked about how, you know, once everyone goes back to work, there's all this um, programming ready for production on your end. And I guess from a storytelling standpoint, um, it's been kind of documented how the reality show framework and the cost structure works, and how it's a lot cost-effective for the studios, but you also talked about in the beginning how production costs are going up. So I was hoping maybe you could touch on maybe where you see the future of content and storytelling going. It's more cost-effective for the networks, not for the studios. you gotta, you got to separate a little bit the networks and the studios, because the studios don't make a lot of money off of non-scripted programming. The non-scripted programming is, is primarily owned by the broadcast networks or by independent companies like Endemol or the company that owns American Idol. Um, so it's an, as a content supplier, as a, as a studio, it's in our best interest to, to get back to the scripted business where we make money is selling our product internationally, is selling our product on home video, is, is keeping our, our scripted programming on, on broadcast networks for as long as possible. Um, in 1988, the last, the last Writers Guild strike, um, there was a shift towards a greater percentage of content being unscripted. Cops came out of the 1988 strike. Um, it's certainly realistic, and I think we already have one in American Gladiator, um, that more non-scripted programming will come out of the, the 2008 strike. Um, but broadcast, broadcast networks want scripted programming because it is, it is more, in, with the rare exception on the non-scripted side, it's far more valuable to the advertisers. It's an environment that the advertisers want to advertise in. And at, at the end of the day, you know, when, when people ask what you do for a living, 
when I'm in a cynical mood, I say, well, you know, our job is to fill in the time in between the commercials because that's what we do. You know, we're there to bring eyeballs to, the, to watch the commercials. So you want to do content that has the highest value for the advertiser, and that's primarily scripted content. Um, a scripted show that works really well can be a very profitable asset for a broadcast network and for a TV studio. What you're going to find, though, is that the, that the networks, because the price points are escalating so quickly on the scripted side, they're having to manage a portfolio of non-scripted and scripted to bring their average cost of programming down. There's, I don't foresee a day where they go to 100% non-scripted because that's not necessarily what the consumer wants. It's certainly not what the advertisers want. So you'll see a blend. You'll see a blend as a reaction to the strike, but also you'll see a blend as a reaction to the escalating costs so that they can average down their, their programming cost budget. As we kind of conclude our discussion here, I want to ask one question kind of in closing. We certainly have a lot of students and a lot of alums that have great interest in transitioning into the entertainment industry at some point in time. Is there any particular advice or suggestions you might give them on things they can do to prepare themselves best to do it if that's an interest they have professionally? Well, I, I, I can't, given this is a business school, I, hope, I can't comment on the creative side. I mean, you know, if you want to be a writer, you want to be an actor, you want to be a director, um, there, there's, there's channels for that. I, on, the, on the business side, um, a couple of things. One is, um, is internships, um, summer internships, um, is a, a willingness to, unless you go you know, the lawyer route and then go in as a lawyer, which is a, a trade, if you're going to go the non-lawyer route, um, you got to be willing to start at the bottom as much as it, I hate to say that. You know, the, the agent training programs are fantastic. Um, most network executives running broadcast networks today started on a desk somewhere. You know, Don Ostroff, who runs the CW, started on Les Moonves' desk. Steve McPherson started, I think, at the CAA training program or ICM. I mean, these guys all started somewhere on somebody's desk. And it's not. Um, it's not demeaning to do that. It's, it's, it's great experience. It's learning who everybody is. It's learning the process. It's learning the time cycle that, that the net, you know, I can only speak to television, that the, that the television season goes through. When is pilot season? What happens in May? What happens in August? What happens in September? Being on somebody's desk certainly, certainly helps with that. Um, you, uh, once you find yourself inside a, a, an entry-level job, you got to work your ass off. You got to make yourself noticed because there's a lot of people looking for that for that entry level job. But those young executives, and not young necessarily in age, but young in experience, who stand out, stand out. I mean, you see them. You know, within the first couple months, who's who's going to make it. Who's going to who you need to to start nurturing. Who you need to pluck out. Who you need to put on a better desk. Who you need to give more experience to. Um, who you need to give scripts to to write coverage for at night, who you want to pay attention to. I mean, you, you can tell really quickly um, who's going who's gonna to stand out. Um, I don't know if that's a direct answer no, for you. No, that's very, very helpful. I appreciate it. It's, a, it's the hardest question I get asked. <laughs> it is. It, it's the hardest question I get asked. Well, thank you so much. We really My appreciate pleasure. your time and your insights today, and we appreciate you spending your Thank all you guys us. for coming out thank in the rain. You so thank much. you. Thank you all so much for joining us. We hope you'll come back on March 4th where we go from television to toys. So come back and join us with Robert Eckert. <laughs>